Hi, I'm Asia Labas and this is Listen to Your Art. Welcome back to the podcast that aims to understand the world through the prism of art. If you have followed the previous series about sustainable fashion in New York, first I'd like to thank you very much. We are now heading into a new series. It's a new topic through a new art. It's called When Fiction Meets Reality. I'm going to interview film directors and screenwriters who have found their inspiration into our everyday lives. My first interview is with Hossein Amini. The, the thing that struck me, and it's, it's the thesis of the film, is, is uh, of the series and the book, is, is, is almost that as the world's got globalized, the gangs are behaving more like corporations. Mm -hmm. and, and the line between gangsters, big business, intelligence agencies, politicians, it, it's much murkier. It's, it's a very, very, you know, much thinner line, I think. His name might not ring a bell for you, but I'm sure you have seen some of the movies he wrote. Drive, Jude, The Two Faces of January. Lately, Hossein wrote the show Mac Mafia that you can see on AMC or Amazon Prime. It tells the story of Alex Gunman, who owns a legitimate hedge fund in London and who will be forced to join the illicit affairs of his Russian family after the death of his uncle. Mac Mafia is a world tour into today's organized crime. We are not in the Godfather anymore. And forget the Martin Scorsese movie that you've seen because the Mafia has dived into the digital age and the globalized world. I've talked with Ossian about it. His show is adapted from the book of the journalist Misha Glenny. It required research, interviews, in order to be a curate regarding to this world. We first spoke about what we are passionate about, writing. He told me about his journey and his work as a screenwriter, the happy moments and the moments of struggle. And as a journalist, I was intrigued how rigorous screenwriters should be when they are building a fiction to reflect the real world, like the modern mafia. What is the role of a screenwriter and should he work like a reporter? Hossein was very generous with his answers. It was an amazing chat and I hope you will enjoy it. So listen to Hossein. So welcome, Hossein. Thank you so much for having me on the, on the podcast. Just to tell you, it's not the first time that we meet, actually. Oh, is it not? Yeah, no, I mean, it was, a, I would say, like a few years ago in London. Uh, it was quite funny. I, I was with my sister and we were in the shop. And I recognized you because I saw one press conference of Drive. Oh, wow. And I was like, I see this man before. But, and, and then I was like, oh, yes, the screenwriter of Drive. And I love this film and I love screenwriting in general. So I went to see you and I said, oh, are you a Saint Amini? And you said, oh, yeah. I definitely remember. I don't get recognized <laughs> that often. So yeah. I do, I, it does ring a bell. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was like, it's the second time that we are going to Fantastic. speak. Even I mean, better. a little bit longer this time. Um, we are going to talk about uh, Mac Mafia, mm -hmm. your show. But mm -hmm. before, I would like to talk a little bit about you. But before that, I have two quotes that I would like to share with you and I would like to have your opinion. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's the first one and it's from Thomas Mann. Mm -hmm. He wrote, a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. Do you agree with that? Is it more difficult for you that? Well, I think it's more difficult because it's something you have to do and, and you do it every day in my case and I'm sure in his case as well. But I think it's, um, I, I find it more addictive than difficult. I find that when, I, when I'm not writing, I, I don't know what to do with myself sometimes and I, I need to move from project to project. And if I don't have something, uh, I, f I feel very restless and I sort of a bit like an animal around the house mm -hmm. um, but but it's 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 difficult some days it's difficult other days it's enjoyable um, 
and and maybe it's more difficult because you you think about it more. Maybe that's what he talks about: is is that you you sort of stress over every word, every sentence, every line of dialogue, and people who don't write for a living probably don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And what do you enjoy the most then? When when do you have the best joy when you write? Uh, I don't. I, I, on good days, I'm happy for the rest of the day. So if I have a good writing day, and I generally tend to work really just the mornings to early afternoon, I, I stop for the rest of the day. Um, I, I'm buzzing after a good day's writing. And if I haven't had a good day, or I haven't written enough, or I've been stuck on a scene, then I torture myself for the rest of the day. So it really mm-hmm. affects my mood. Okay. And do you only write uh, screenplay? Or do you write something else sometimes just to change? No, I, I only write screenplays. I, I started off kind of writing when I was much younger. Um, I wrote a play, which was how I got an agent, and I, I wrote poetry and short stories. But I, I, I sort of got into the whole money track that you get into with screenwriting, and, 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 and so that's become my living, really. The other quote is from Peter Morgan. So, mm-hmm. you know, he wrote yeah, The Queen and The Crown. Yeah. No, he's a friend of mine. <laughs> and he said that something, I mean, you quite talked about it. He said that you are, you are a writer if you write every day. So did you write today? Can you say? I did write today, yeah. Okay. And that, that's what I was saying earlier is when yeah. the days when I don't write or I don't mm-hmm. have anything to write, I, I find it really hard to know what to do. So that, that's what I mean by the addiction thing. And, and, and I, I have a fairly regular routine of writing um which is i think what peter means in that quote is 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 you really um it becomes your profession and and your daily way of living and mm-hmm. you know i mean particularly the, the the hours that i work which tends to be from about 7 seven thirty till about two okay. on the days when i'm not writing those particular hours i really don't know what to do with myself and how many pages do you have to write um per day i i'm happy with about between three to six I don't I don't you know okay um, but I do a lot of rewriting so mm-hmm. so those three pages I'll rewrite five times within the day and I'll just go over and mm-hmm. over and then I'll start the next morning going over the same pages again so um, just yeah. to have a day distance between them because you think you've written something amazing you read it the next day <laughs> and someone good. read it in front of you uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Exactly. yeah it's actually some uh, French uh, screenwriter told that to me once um, Thomas Bigin he writes for Jacques mm-hmm. Audiard mm-hmm. for, ex- uh, for instance and he said that a good ri- screenwriter is not someone who writes well but someone who rewrites well I, I think rewriting yeah. is, is really important and also you know professionally then responding to notes is very important particularly if you if you work in in the hollywood american system where it's a very collaborative and commercial process yeah. where you know your your writing scripts are responsible for a lot of people's money mm-hmm. so there's a lot of notes and and collaboration and discussion so if you can't sort of absorb that and rewrite with those those things in mind then you're in a bit of trouble Okay. And how long have you been a writer? Because I, I started pretty much straight out of university, which was about 23, 24 years old. Um, and then I didn't, I didn't get anything made for the first three or four years. And I, mm-hmm. I was very lucky in that I had parents who were quite supportive. And my yeah. brother, who was a, a war photographer at the time, would, um, he'd, he'd sort of help me out as well. So I, I had the luxury of having three or four years where I didn't uh, need to earn Mm-hmm. Um, That's the biggest difficulty for writers even today. Yeah, yeah to earn money. Because it's also writing. very difficult. It's very easy to give up because mm-hmm. you know if you don't have, you know, that support, um, and you know some of it's internal drive and other stuff is um, is, is really circumstances. So I was quite lucky. Okay. Uh, why did you choose this profession? Why did you wanted to become a writer? 
Did I mean your parents are in this profession? No, my parents weren't at all. I mean, my father was a huge film buff, and I remember when we were much younger with my brother and I, when he lived in Paris, my mother lived in London. But he'd he'd often take us to the Champs Elysees, and we'd watch like three mm-hmm. movies in a row: two o'clock yeah. showing, a four, and a six o'clock showing. So I sort of I just grew up watching lots of films, right. uh, and that's how I learned to write. And I, I sort of was interested in directing quite early on, but then, you know, the danger with The, the what danger, temptation of screenwriting is you're suddenly being paid and um, it's easy to move from job to job. Whereas I think with directing, you really, there's a massive commitment, especially if you're writing and directing. Yeah. It ends up being two, three years of your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's why you prefer that. And there was something maybe in your childhood. I mean, maybe when you wrote something and you realize, oh, well, I want to make a living out of it. I think I started, I mean, I always enjoyed, I didn't, I enjoyed writing and didn't really know why I enjoyed writing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because I, I was reading a book recently that talked about how how writing, people who want to write tend to have quite complicated childhoods. Okay. And and certainly my childhood was very happy, but it was also my parents' separation and, and also the revolution when it happened. So to between about sort of 11, when I was about 11, 10, 11, 12, it was quite intense. And I think that stays with you. And I think a lot of writers, there are those periods where you're not aware of it, but there are certain emotions, I think, that start to kind of bubble up inside you that then express themselves years later when you write. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, so this series, the theme is when fiction meets reality. Yeah. What is for you the role of a screenwriter today? Uh, what do you do? You think that you have to reflect the reality because it's often what you do in the stories that you. Well, well for me, for me, the most important thing is the emotional reality. Mm-hmm. Um, when I find the lines of dialogue that I'm really happy with, is if if you feel they can pass off as real, that you can really imagine two people we could drop in on somebody and they could be saying that now that doesn't mean it's not crafted but but i find right i, I find dialogue and i really appreciate like tarantino's dialogue yeah. or um you know there are other writers but but it, but i can't do that it feels it, it feels too crafted to me it feels mm-hmm. that that so the reality that people have to talk like i can imagine them talking there has to be an emotional truth and even in a genre film whether it's a sci-fi or a thriller mm-hmm. I, I, I'm definitely drawn to I guess a sense of realism rather than the heightened dramas that I, I kind of love and appreciate but I can't necessarily write also what I wanted to ask you was um, if you have a, a method in writing yeah. do you follow any some kind of because you know there's for example the three acts yeah. in writing yeah. or there's also this theory that the, in the 10 first pages you have to set the story we have to really understand who is the character and yeah. what is the role do you do you think of that like some kind of if, if there is an equation you know I, mean, I, s- like I certainly did I used to read lots of those screenwriting books mm-hmm. um, but I think I've sort of now either absorbed it or, or but I, I don't really go back to those books but I, I sort of find In terms of three-act structure, I, d- I do agree with three-act structures, but I also think... Can you explain to the audience what the, yeah, the, the three-acts are? Well, the three-acts is the idea that the beginning, first act is the setup, the second act is the development of the story, and the third act is the resolution, mm-hmm. and from Aristotle to, yeah. to modern-day screenwriting gurus, everyone seems to think there is a... But I, th- I think there's a natural storytelling structure, beginning, middle, and end, um, So, so that's almost logical. But I, but I find also screenwriting is it's quite similar to music in terms of, for example, what I'm more aware of is if I have like three big dialogue scenes back to back, then I'm in trouble. So I know I need, okay. I need to change the rhythm. I need to sort of have 
a shorter one or a longer one or an action scene and to pace it and to build towards the end and climaxes and crescendos mm-hmm. and whatever. And so, so I think those rhythms start to become more important. Um, I, th- I think the, the three-act structure and all the screenwriting tricks and stuff and, and, and rules are very useful to sort of have stored inside you, but I think you would start to find your own rhythm as, as you write more and more. Mm-hmm. So the, the rhythm is something. Um, um, something I was wondering: well, what makes a good screenplay? Is there like the in the structure we can like? I think structure is really mm-hmm. important because it's 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 like there are there are screenwriters I know who you read their prose and it's not beautiful or elegant or whatever, but actually there's something about the architecture of the screenplays. Yes. And um, it was a great line I read. It was an interview with a director who did westerns. They asked him one of these gruff directors, and they asked him, um, you know, why that particular film he'd done worked. And he said it moved like a son of a bitch. And I think there's something <laughs> about the speed and the structure and yeah. the smoothness of those things, which is very important. Um, and what is the screenplay that you wrote and that you are the most proud of? Do you have like a favorite? Well, my favorite is 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 really the first one I wrote, mm-hmm. which, which was an adaptation of Jude the Obscure. Um, Maybe because it was the first one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was a really fun experience. It was with Michael Winterbottom, but but he you know he shot the second or third draft. It got green lit pretty quickly, yeah. and and everything afterwards was much harder. There's another movie that you wrote, and I wanted to speak with you, uh, The Dying of the Light. Yeah, uh, because it's inspired by your true story. Yeah, and yeah, it's one of the first screenplay also. Uh, yeah, it's the first screenplay first I wrote that got made. Yeah, and it's on the m- the murder of the British aid worker Sean Devro mm-hmm. in Somalia. So what I was wondering is how did it happen? I mean, how did you decided to do that? And also, how did you work to cover that event? Because did you like became a little bit of a journalist, a reporter? To well, I, we, I, I worked with um, a director on that, Peter Kosminski, who's very well known for doing docudramas, and he does extensive research. So we had a lot of research available. Um, but what was interesting on that one was I, I he, he was very, very rigorous about the documentary side of it. Mm-hmm. And I automatically found my imagination drifting towards something slightly more fictional. So, for example, Sean Devereaux, I, I believe, was killed by a young man in his 20s. But because the whole story was about how he looked after children, I, f- I felt the irony of being shot by a younger, you know, mm-hmm. A sort of adolescent teenager um, so w- with Peter we argued with Peter Kuzminski we argued <laughs> a fair bit about that Changed um, the, the, and yeah. then I do remember seeing probably the grisliest video I ever saw which was connected to that story which was um, which was a um, a killing that was recorded in Liberia one they tortured the ex-president and there was this famous recording that was going around at the time And I kind of wish I hadn't seen that because mm-hmm. it's really stayed with me ever since. Um, but yes, you you do have to do a lot of research. It was very hard to go to Liberia at the time, so okay. I didn't do that bit. To um, see how it was yeah, like Yeah, so it was then. the two places it was set in were Liberia and Somalia, which were both no-go areas. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't, you know, if I'd have been braver, I'd have probably done it, but they were both war zones at the time. So. Okay, and how much do you research on a subject before writing about it? Research is my favorite bit, so, mm-hmm. so I'll... I'll tend to do two or three weeks minimum and read 20, 30 books okay. and keep researching as I carry on, really. 
for example, um, can you tell me on, maybe not on Mac Mafia, because we are going to talk about it a bit later, but you read any kind of books? Uh, do you watch interviews? or Do you even interview people uh, sometimes? Yeah, I absolutely. I, I'll, if, if they're available, I'll, I'll, I'll interview them. I'll read a lot. I watch a lot of movies around the same subject, mm -hmm. documentaries. Um, I tend to read a lot of nonfiction. So even if it's a fictional thing, mm -hmm. there'll be... You know, and quite often I'll choose a project based on how interested I am in the research and the world that it's set in. I, f I find world building one of the most exciting things for me about um, screenwriting, and that's which is probably why I overwrite in terms of stage descriptions, you know, screen descriptions and whatever, because I mean, the way I write is I literally see the thing in my head and, mm -hmm. and try to copy down what I see. Yeah. Because what is your responsibility when you are uh, covering a true story, for example? Because, you know, sometimes at the beginning of a movie, it says uh, freely uh, inspired. But do you feel when you're also covering uh, an event that already happened that you have to have this responsibility for the people that then will watch yeah. the movie? Well, that, that one I felt a particular responsibility because it was very close He he hadn't died that long ago, mm -hmm. and his family was still around. Yeah. But but actually, I think that was the last time I've done anything like that. Because when I've done true stories, I've just recently written a couple of scripts which were based on true events, and one was about uh, a German tennis player called von Kram. But I think he died just sort of in the '60s, so it wasn't. It was far away enough. But but again, you're sensitive to the family, um, you know. Things like that, but but not to the extent that I mm -hmm. was that first time round when you knew that his loved ones were going to watch the film. And, okay. Um, and there's something that you said about the um, the movie Drive and mm -hmm. how you write the first scene to write this properly. You ask some advice to a security guard yeah. uh, at Universal Studio. Yeah. Um, can you tell the story? Well, he, he was. Um, they basically because initially the script had been for Universal. It didn't end up being made by them, but they put me in touch with. I think their head of security had been an ex-policeman, and the first thing he said is, "There's no point in doing a car chase because with heli police helicopters, you know." we always get them in the end um, okay. and so that became the uh -huh. challenge is how to have a car chase and that, then that, how do you get away so it's so the, the idea of ending it in the um staples center the sports arena mm -hmm. sort of them working backwards from that, that so that was that was the big breakthrough okay. um that i had with the producer adam siegel this was before nick or ryan were mm -hmm. on board um And, and then it's pretty much actually that was one of the scenes that really was scripted pretty much shot pretty much scripted because it was um, you know I, I had a um, I don't actually drive and nor does Nick Reffin which mm -hmm. is one of the ironies did you, do you have your no, driving license that. okay but he did he did uh, <laughs> I think when I told him I'd failed seven times. He then gave an interview and he said that he'd failed eight times. Actually, so. <laughs> I was wondering if you had seen yeah. because... No, I, 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 no, I did it in my 20s and I gave But up. you're in London. You don't yeah, need a car. But, um, but I did. I, then I had a... Um, the studio provided me with the driver to take me around all of the areas we ended, mm -hmm. that ended up being scripted. So around uh, the LA River Basin and then the... the the underpass and stuff where he goes and hides was all that was all stuff okay. that I'd seen and the basketball game on the radio and yeah. the police uh, radio also yeah. you wrote that yeah yeah so how did you do that, that was, so, so the idea behind that was was to um, was the the you know because you didn't want to know I, I felt you needed a sort of mystery in there so mm -hmm. why is he listening to the basketball game and, and, and it really pays off uh -huh. at the end so in a way that has a beginning and a middle and then because he turns it on 
um, <clears throat> you're wondering what they're talking about to so the police radio and the basketball are kind of coming in at the same time and by the end you realize the two come together that, mm-hmm. that he's he's planned the whole thing all along um, but but I kind of love that kind of right and and actually the I'd originally written it with the LA Lakers okay and the producer Adam Siegel um, was a big fan of the Clippers, so yeah. I had to change all the names of the <laughs> basketball players. Ah. <laughs> do, do you watch basketball and NBA? I do a little bit, but not, uh, not enough to know okay. the difference between the players of the LA Clippers and the Yeah, Lakers. and it's a 10-minute scene and 10 pages of, uh, I, I, I think it's I read. Yeah, it's, yeah. Quite, yeah, it's quite a long... It's, yeah. it's, 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 and it's, apart from the bits of um, police radio stuff uh. um, and the basketball game, it, it's, it, it's sort of all blocks of... Um, scene description yeah lots of description but it's yeah. really interesting I think for any people who want to become a screenwriter it's a very interesting that's an advice that usually screenwriters say like to watch a movie and read at the same time the screenplay mm-hmm. uh, it's mm. interesting to do that with this film but this first scene uh, especially well, some, and some of the scenes are quite different because I mm-hmm. think sometimes you know and I think that's what happens in, in a lot of which I, which I used to be quite sort of protective of before I directed for the first time I used to think well you know, an actor changes a line or they drop a line or whatever. But but actually having directed, you realize you need those accidents on set. And as long as the bones of the screenplay are strong, it's 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 you don't want to stick too rigorously because I think then mm-hmm. it becomes a bit stillborn yeah. and it needs a little bit of fluidity and inventiveness in the shoot. So, I mean, I, I love rewriting during the shoot or yeah. during rehearsals and stuff. I mean, on Drive, I had a lot of fantastic um, script notes from the actors. Um, dialogue notes, suggestions, I, you know. And when you directed your first film, mm-hmm. uh, so the two faces of yeah. January, uh, did you rewrite at the same time during the filming? Well, what I learned, what I learned from the experience on Drive, and the, the, the thing I loved about Nick Ruffin was he was very open about letting me talk to the actors. Mm-hmm. A, lo- a lot of directors are very insecure about the relationship between screenwriters and actors, but he was like, "Yeah, I'm going to go on a location scout, sit down, and get their notes and." you know, go and change this or that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because of that experience and how rewarding I'd found getting notes from actors had been, what I did on, on Two Faces January, the film that I was directing, is I had rehearsals a month before. Mm-hmm. Then that allowed me to rewrite without the pressures of shooting because I, th- I think shooting becomes quite hectic, and mm-hmm. especially for a first-time director, which is what I was. But I, but I, I, from if, if I can do that again, I would absolutely do the same thing, which is to speak to the actors early enough, even if it's conversations, it doesn't need rehearsals, just to get um, their thoughts and notes and rewrite for them as actors because mm-hmm. I think that adds another dimension to what's... That's great. It's very collaborative. Yeah, then. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I find it really, really rewarding. Yeah. So now we are going to talk about Mac Mafia. Mm-hmm. So The Guardian described it as a groundbreaking international thriller that is taking us in money launderers in Dubai, cyber criminals in India, black marketers in Prague, drug lords in Colombia, and Bedouin smugglers in the Nedjev desert. Mm. So, do you f- and wha- how would you sum up uh, th- this show, Mac Mafia? Well, I think it was a combination of obviously taking. You know, Misha's Glennie book, which was very, very heavily factual. And yeah. And done extensive research. Of um, Misha Glennie, the journalist. The journalist, yeah. exactly. And then and then also, but but you sort of have to, I, I drew on quite a lot of my own, again, I'm talking about the emotional truth thing, I drew on a lot of my own um, experiences of li- coming to London as an exile. Yeah. Being kind of 
bullied and slightly sort of racially abused at school, which mm-hmm. was in the 80s before it was much more tolerant um, here. Because the main character is... Yeah, so I sort of always took some of my experiences, mm-hmm. um, which I think every writer does, and then put them on this, this character yeah. of, of Alex Godman. And I think that the, the two, the emotional combination of emotional reality and some factual reality was quite important um, you know and, and and I think it was the same for James Watkins who directed it is there are a lot of um, you know there are a lot of people who were involved let's say in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in some mafia things who, yeah. were, who were in the you know extras or whatever or okay. in the cast and crew and you know there, there's pretty extensive research on both sides um, of you know behind yeah. the camera because the, so it's um, a Russian family in yeah. London yeah. and the main character Alex Godman so he, he's born in London and he he's born in the UK and he grew up there but as you he has this kind of exiles I mean it's more the, the parents but uh, to have to culture and, and being being mocked being because it's also, the two, and also not really knowing yeah. what you are yeah. which I think is, is more and more is happening more and more for people all over the world mm-hmm. like when, I, when it happened to me it was quite rare there weren't you know there were lots of immigrants but it was the idea of everyone really now I think for the first time in, in London there are more people who weren't born here mm-hmm. than who, who were but, but from, at the time that wasn't the case you know Uh, in terms of the statistics of less at all. Okay, um, and, and so there's a, f- a season one. Yeah. Uh, are you ro- uh, working right now on the season um, two? They are. There are other people working on season two. I'm not working on TV. I'm, I'm an no? executive on it, but I'm okay. not. I'm not working on it. it I, I, I mean, I loved. I loved doing the first one. It, it's just, I get a little bit, not bored, but I don't know that I had the energy to go back into that same world again. And I, I, I love discovering new worlds in terms mm-hmm. of writing. Um, but I love I love doing it. I love the collaboration with James and, you know, it's good fun. If we can go back a little bit at the beginning of this adventure mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Mac Mafia, what surprised you the most when you read the book of uh, Michel Glenny Mac Mafia? Um, and what did you discover? Something that you didn't know about the world of organized organized yeah, I mean, crime. What, 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 what I, the, the thing that struck me, and it's, it's the thesis, the film is is uh, the series and the book is, is is almost that as the world's got globalized, the gangs are behaving more like corporations, mm-hmm. and, and the line between gangsters, big business, intelligence agencies, politicians, it's it's much murkier. It's it's a very very you know much thinner line, I think. And so that that idea that you have. I guess in famously in The Godfather, mm-hmm. that there's, you know, yes, there's some corrupting politicians, but the, that world is kept apart. Um, it's beginning to change, beginning to merge, but now it's fully, you know, absorbed into various systems and stuff. Uh, and the fact that they also, to, to kill people is bad business. Um, and, and actually that the majority... You know, they will do anything to avoid that. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that they would love to work like legitimate businesses, but sometimes the easiest way to get what they want is to intimidate or, or ultimately to kill. But it, it, it feels like a last resort thing. Exactly. Uh, so the main character, Alex, uh, so just to describe it, him a little bit. So he's a 33 years old CEO and manager of a hedge fund mm-hmm. in London. And uh, so he tried to stay away from the family business, the illicit family business mm-hmm. for a long time. But at some point, I won't say why, but he has to. And uh, what is interesting is the way that he's joining the, the mafia is by staying behind, I mean, in front of his mm-hmm. computer mm-hmm. in his office by transferring money. Yep. So it's very, so it's like white color, c- color yeah. and crime he, and his superpower is that he's he's a very very 
talented, successful banker. Yeah. And in, in a world which is still is also about money, how mm -hmm. can how can you, you know? So money laundering, I think, is the lifeblood of organized yeah. crime right now. So That's naturally, a bank billion. would be really talented at that. Yeah. So it was quite an easy leap. So it was when you had to write that to show that was it maybe challenging to not you know like doesn't have to make to be too boring maybe you know when you yeah, think of it, someone look, and, so, and some people did find it you know I, I think people's expectations I think I think certainly here some of the early reviews and stuff found it boring for that reason which which is there's an expectation of speed and bio, you mm -hmm. know high drama and whatever and and. I think we the, the ambition was always to um, to try to tell a story that was you know keep it entertaining, but also that was that was truth to what I found was a you know fascinating truth of how close to big business organized crime is now. Yeah. Um, and so I read a lot of books on on you know banking and Wall Street and whatever as research. Uh, There's the though, new mafia. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it is because it's, it's like moving money has become so difficult. It's not cash-based. Mm -hmm. you know, the economy is not as cash-based as it used to be. Mm -hmm. And cash stands out. So actually, you know, the moving money is a really, really important skill. And this was also about how, and again, it was a thesis of Misha's book, which is that, that cr organized crime has really moved from the 20th century into the 21st century. Yeah. And, and and so maybe one of the repercussions of that is it's a little bit slower and, and, and you have to work a bit harder in terms of what's going on than, than stand, you know, more um, other gangster TV shows. But that, yeah. was, that was the ambition. Anyway. And did you talk to anyone from that world? From yeah. Any? yeah. So what kind of, I mean, I don't... Talk to hackers, talk oh, okay. to um, people who transported for the mafia, um, talked to people who'd been involved with the Russian Mafia. Um, we spoke to people who'd been threatened. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we did a pretty full range of... And what are you trying to get when you speak with them? Like you just maybe some inspiration for a scene or also something maybe to be true to their reality? It's interesting because there's two things because quite, quite, quite often when you speak to experts, they tell you the film version of themselves mm -hmm. so when you talk to policemen particularly they they tend to suddenly become a bit more like policemen in movies in themselves um but what i was after was actually the the, the stuff about their lives you know what they're like as real people outside of their professional when, when criminal police life exactly mm -hmm. it, it's how how does that impact their life it's it's the bits i guess we don't see normally in mm -hmm. films and that was again something Matthew was really interested to me which is 95% of the time they're not gangsters they're mothers or fathers or children or whatever and those relationships were really important and and so it was trying to pry and get their their real sort of extra you know the things their hobbies their interests their whatever but also I know physical tics the way they speak um the tiny details that you can never really make up which 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 it's 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 so specific that it's true um that you couldn't you know so that that's the stuff that i find exciting mm -hmm. whether it's a turn of phrase or a little like there was a thing misha told us about you know a gangster whose hobby was dog shows and we put it in the in the show 
but um, I could never have come up with that idea. Yeah. You know, There's also one uh, character, Vadim, which yeah. is kind of like the, we'd say, the drug oligarch, yeah. Russian drug yeah. oligarch. And we see him, so he's kind of, so he's, he has so many businesses and he's at the head of so many, I don't know how many <laughs> billion or million of mm -hmm. dollars, but we also see a lot of scene with his daughter, with his yeah. family. So it's, it's exactly what you just said. It's to see maybe the human part of the character. But th but th there's, there's a line I, I keep saying it's Hitchcock, but I'm not sure that it is, but it was something about that every villain is the hero of their own story, mm -hmm. um, which I find has always been like the thing that I follow the most. And I, I, I you know, anybody whether it's in sci-fi or in western or any genre I, I just the more human they are and the more understandable the more interesting and sometimes frightening I find them so you know the, the moment they become cartoon villains I, I find them less scary yeah and and so it was really important to to get, to make him a proper rounded character in the sense that well, one of the big influences on McMaffey was also Heat uh, in terms of this sort of these two characters who are in a deadly in deadly combat but at the same time fascinated and rather admiring of each other um, Alex and Vadim mm -hmm. yeah that there is it's, it's almost like a, a love story of enemies mm -hmm. um, and um, when you read the book of Misha Glenny, what yeah. was the most important thing to reflect? Because there's no the story of Alex Goodman. No, there's, no, there's no story, but I think it was, it was really the thesis, I guess, mm -hmm. which is as the world's got globalized, the organized crime has had to work mm -hmm. in order to exploit that and being able to exploit that. So they now work like multi multinational kind of corporations. And so the Russian mafia cooperate with the you know, the Indians who cooperate mm -hmm. with the triads who yeah. cooperate. And, and that was, fa that multiculturalism was really fascinating. So, so do you feel like you, your role is also to inform people? Um, yeah, I, I did with that particular show, I, I did. And, and it, it's funny because it, a lot of people found it sort of quite hard work because of that. I think they felt like they were being spoon-fed a kind of, uh, you know, I, I'm really proud of the series, but, yeah. you know, you can't help reading some of the negative stuff as well, which is, which is, which is sort of, I think, slightly... I think it was tricky because it, it came out at a time when... I think TV right now is in quite a heightened mode. Yeah. In, in that I think realism and slower TV is... It's not as fashionable as heightened, fun, mm -hmm. you know, consumable one. You know, I think I think I think it's you know, and coming from movies, I sort of probably made the mistake of writing the beginning like you would the first twenty pages, the yeah. first two episodes. Right? What I've realised is reviewers only only really review the first the pilot, episode, yeah, and you know, very few people watch the whole series, mm -hmm. and so. The way I'd written it, it was all building towards the the ending, mm -hmm. uh, and realizing that in TV that's not a guarantee no, that people yeah. stick. And um, did you have any feedback from maybe the people from that hackers or the people from the mafia when they, if they see the if they saw the yeah. show saying <laughs> we had, we had, they uh, when Misha told us that he'd had. Uh, some of the Balkan Mafia complaining oh. that we hadn't featured them enough and okay. that they, they taught the Russian Mafia everything they know. So that was that was the one bit of feedback we had. Okay. Uh, but what was what was really gratifying was actually it was a show that I think 
both critically and, and to a certain extent commercially did better in, in, in Europe and in the kind of worlds that it was set in okay. mm-hmm. than it did necessarily, even though a lot of it was in the UK and um, it did well here, but, but in the States, less. Um, and, and it was, you know, I, th- I think it was really interesting that it had, had a fan base in Russia, um, which was really important given that we were non-Russians writing about Russia. Yeah. And um, so do you think a screenwriter w- should be a, a, a guarantor? Uh, of the truth? No. No. I don't. I don't think that's. I mean, the biggest responsibility is probably still to entertain because it's yeah. it's, it's an industry that involves people losing money. It's not like it's not like writing a a, a book where the production costs are relatively cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, in a big Hollywood movie, you're risking 150 million dollars, which could be used to save a the whole country so, yeah. so it's 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 there is a responsibility and I, I, I think it's you know the, the truth is important to me creatively but I, I'm also very aware that you know people want to be entertained okay and what are you working on right now um, I'm working on a script that I want to direct I was hoping to do it this summer but then I mm. inj- injured my leg um, <laughs> But it's it's a true story about a German tennis player from the 30s who was um, was a sort of poster boy for the Nazis, but was was actually gay and was very very um, you know did his best to help people in terms of what little resistance he could. But it's it's really the story of like a um, someone who was heroic in a very small way and, and in a very everyday way and it's one of the things I found really interesting was you know it, I related to it because I was thinking well that's probably how that's how I'd behave I'd be I wouldn't be picking up guns and you know shooting down <laughs> Nazis because I because they were sort of oppressing me but I would try to resist in whatever small way and that that I found sort of quite related okay yeah. And um, to close, uh, finish this interview, what advice would you give to a young screenwriter, someone who wants to succeed in this career? I'd say persistence, because it's it's something you you really learn as you do it. I mean, I remember the first screenplays I wrote, um, people would always walk through the door and they'd always leave and that would be, you know, leave through the door and I'd write the whole scene. You know, until I sat in an editing room, I realized that literally just 10 seconds of someone lying on a bed like you have in, I mean, what, um, blue is the warmest color. Yeah. We, we say in English. And it's Histoire d'Adèle. La vie d'Adèle. Oui, Abdelhaj. So for example, that, that is a fantastic film. There are moments of just being with her where you know, just dropping in and seeing her in her life that you are as moving as any scene that involves dialogue or... Um, so th- th- those are things you learn with experience and it's very easy to give up. So I think it's just... And, and also rejection is a really important part of screenwriting. Okay. It's, it's not to take it personally. Often they probably haven't read more than a couple of pages of the script or they've just read it as being in a bad mood. Yeah. Or, I don't know. So th- it's... it's it's really easy to say, but I just think you have to really want it and keep at it and then not to give up. Okay. And any advice to anyone who wants to enter in the mafia, maybe? <laughs> enter in the mafia. Yeah, I think be good at uh, finances. Go be, to be, business be, yeah, school. Yeah, to know, know, know how to exactly go to business school. Okay. 
Uh, well, thank you so much, Hussein, oh, host, you. to be with me today and to talk. It was very... Yeah, it was lovely chatting yeah. to you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, and um, I hope we will see your next movie thank very you so soon. Much. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye.